in your word over and over again, you tell us who we are in relation to you and what you had to do so that we could have a relationship with you. God, we are sinners. We've all messed up. We all deserve to be separated from you. And yet, you made a way. You loved each and every one of us so much that you died for us in our place. So God, thank you so much for that amazing grace this morning. Thank you so much for your word that spells this out so clearly and that we get to dig into that this morning. So I pray as we do so that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we could see your words more clearly as you intended them for us. So thank you for this time. We praise you this morning for your amazing grace through Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Just uh, before we get into God's Word this morning, I have one um, order of business that I meant to cover last Sunday and forgot because I got a little bit distracted last Sunday and then just moved on without mentioning uh, where we're going next in our sermon series. (laughs) Uh, Last week, we finished a sermon series in the Sermon on the Mount that took us through most of the summer, and often people say, hey, where are we headed next? And I didn't say, and that's not because that's a state secret or anything, actually, uh, Just the opposite, we like people to know where we're headed so that you can read ahead and come to Sunday mornings informed, so I feel bad about uh, forgetting that. I actually got a little bit distracted by some football talk that was taking place last week, if you remember, Um, which leads me to say, just for the record, um, we're not a super formal church, but on Sunday morning, like football jerseys are not appropriate attire. Can I just say that? (laughs) Even, Even if a leader like maybe an associate pastor in the church were to come to church with a football jersey, that's like still not okay, right? I know that would never happen here. Except, oh, where did Jordan go? Wow. <laughs> Look for the Dallas Cowboy jersey. There it is. Thank you. Everybody turn around. Wait, 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 wait. I didn't tell you how to react. I needed a boo. Thank you. There we go. There we go. Not appropriate attire, you know, but there is grace. Uh, even for Texas people, they're so cute. <laughs> Thinking that Texas is the rest of the world. And anyway, um, see, I did it again. I got distracted. How did I stop doing that to me? Yeah. All right. <laughs> Seriously. Um, how am I going to just totally mess that up? Now we're going to preach God's word. Good job, Matt. Um, Where we are going next, I'm actually very excited about. Uh, In two weeks, we're going to start the main sermon series for the fall, which is going to be a seven-sermon overview of the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. Now, I'm very excited about this for a variety of reasons. First of all, uh, when I began studying Ezekiel in preparation for this last month, I really had no idea what to do with this book. Um, Like some of you, I was fairly familiar with certain parts of it, but I'd never actually studied it cover to cover. And Ezekiel is a bizarre book. It is probably the strangest book in the entire Old Testament. Definitely one of the strangest books in the whole Bible. Ezekiel himself, the prophet, was a colorful character. Um, He's an entertaining dude. He is fun to read about. And the visions in his book that comprise some of the content of his prophecies are just wild. They're like nothing that had ever come to prophets before then. And they strike us as totally bizarre because, frankly, they are somewhat bizarre. So if nothing else, uh, the study of Ezekiel will be entertaining. But Actually, it'll be more than just entertaining. Uh, Ezekiel's an important book. It sits at a major crossroads in the unfolding plan of Scripture, and it contributes a good deal to uh, the Bible's message. In fact, 
The book of Ezekiel is referred back to and built on by Jesus and many other New Testament authors multiple times. So it's an important book to understand in order to grasp uh, the ministry of Jesus himself. Finally, um, the study of Ezekiel this past month or so for me um, went from informative to really moving my heart to worship at several points, just sitting in my office after a few hours of diving into like lots of detail and being overwhelmed and then seeing a connection and going, oh my God, literally, that's beautiful, you're beautiful. And I hope to just introduce you to that same experience because that's what Bible reading is supposed to be all about. We meet God in the pages of scripture and we get to know him better. So that begins in two Sundays from now. Uh, In the meantime, this morning and next week, we're actually gonna start this fall with a kind of short, Two sermon, I guess, mini-series, you could call it, on one of our core values as a church, and that is the value of Scripture itself. Uh, Our core values that we often refer to here at Harvest is that we're Bible-based, we are gospel-centered, and we are God-focused. We also aspire to be a people who are captivated by God's infinite worth, seeing that as ultimately beautiful, and to be a people who display the love of God and how we love for one another. So those are some of our core values and the things that we aspire to be. We, we often assume that stuff in everything else that we're doing. We don't usually talk about it a lot because by definition, it's kind of what a core value is. You know, it's just, it's kind of part of your DNA. It's part of who you are. And yet, from time to time, it's really useful to pause and look more intently and intentionally at our core values and talk about what are they, why are they that way, where do they come from in Scripture, and why are they important. That's what we're going to do this morning with that first core value. When we say that we are a Bible-based church, like what does that mean, and how does that impact us individually as members of this church? Those are important questions, and we want to take a couple of weeks looking at them. Uh, This morning, what we're going to do is talk a little bit about what the Bible itself says about itself and about how to base your life on it, how to be a Bible-based people or a Bible-based church, along with several really practical takeaways. We've got some tools this morning I want to put into your hands and hopefully inspire and motivate uh, those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ to dive fresh and new and with renewed vigor into the Bible personally. Next week, we're going to take a look at part of Psalm 19 on the value of Scripture and what it means to love Scripture because we're loving the God of Scripture. So that's where we're headed for the next couple of Sundays. This morning, we begin by looking at what the Bible teaches about itself. And we titled this sermon, Essential, Available, and Enough. And for those of you who are OCD and notice that there is only two periods up there instead of three, um, that was not intentional on my part. I apologize. That's what happens when I type fast and I miss keys. But at least it's getting you looking at the slide, right? (laughs) Essential, available, and enough. That's three words, three words that summarize three of the most important and foundational teachings that Christians have always believed about the Bible. Uh, Theologians have some fancy words for these. They also have some plain English words. The plain English words are the necessity of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture, and the sufficiency of Scripture. And that's what I want to do this morning is take just a couple of minutes. We're not going to go deep into these. We could preach multiple sermons on each one of those, but the purpose of this is just to either refresh our vision or perhaps kindle anew our vision of what the scripture is in summary fashion and how we live that out practically. Scripture is uh, necessary, it is uh, accessible, and it is enough. We're going to think for just a few minutes about each one of these points and then give us some tools to work out the implications of these points because they all have some very practical implications for us. 
We're going to start with this idea of Scripture's necessity. Uh, Scripture is necessary. That's a strong word. It's an extreme word. Um, there's There's no degrees of necessity. You need something or you don't. And one of the core things that the Bible teaches about itself is that if you're a Christian, you need the Bible. And that's not just... Um, sort of uh, metaphorical or overstated language. We could summarize in kind of man-on-the-street plain English what this idea is in the Bible this way. This is just my, my own spin on, on well-worn theological principles. Scripture's necessity means that the Bible is necessary for maintaining and growing your spiritual life. It's a big statement. The key word there is, is necessary. It is absolutely necessary. It is essential to maintaining and growing your spiritual life. That means the reverse is also true. You cannot grow and thrive spiritually as a Christian without the words of this book. It's a strong statement, but that's exactly what the Bible teaches about itself. It says this in a variety of places. Uh, for the sake of time, I'm just going to highlight a couple of key scripture passages that uh, illustrate these principles. Um, maybe nowhere more clearly in the Bible is this stated than from the words of our Lord himself, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. This is, of course, his temptation in the wilderness. He's out there. Satan is trying to tempt him in his humanity to fall short of his own glory as the God-man, and he does not do so. In the first temptation, he responds to Satan by quoting, incidentally, word for word from the book of Deuteronomy, the Old Testament. Uh, Deuteronomy is part of the first five books of the Bible, which is the foundation of everything else that come. The other 61 books of the Bible are all built on those first five. And so here's Jesus in the New Testament, referring back to the Old Testament verbatim, and he quotes uh, Deuteronomy saying, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So much rich implications to that. Man will live by every word that comes from the mouth of God, by God's words by what God has told us. Those are, those are the sources of life. You can't live without them in the same way that your body will die without food. The whole man will die without the precious truths of God's word. Just as the body needs both um, food, both to survive and to grow and thrive, you need a minimal amount of food just to survive. You need more nutritious and healthy food if you're going to grow strong and live long and be healthy. And in the exact same way, your soul needs the priceless truths of God at a minimum level just to survive, just to be alive spiritually, and at a much more robust level if you are to grow and to thrive. That's the analogy that our Lord is making. I can put it this way. Show me um, an immature Christian, somebody who claims to be a Christian. Maybe they are, maybe they're not. I don't know. It's not really for me to find out. God knows. But somebody who says, yeah, I'm a Christian, but, but they clearly are just not really living for God. Show me an immature Christian, and I will virtually guarantee you that whatever else may be true of their lives, whatever other factors may contribute to their lack of spiritual maturity, I can just about guarantee you that near the top of the list, there will be little to no independent intake of the Bible. It's just guaranteed. And you don't even need to be an expert to be able to discern that. 
It's almost like seeing some of the tragic pictures of, of young children in very impoverished parts of the third world who are just emaciated and they're, they're clearly you know, starving. And you don't have to be a, a doctor or a nutrition expert to realize whatever else is going on in that little boy or that little girl's life, they're not getting enough nutrition. Their body needs that. You can just see it. The same thing is true spiritually. You can see people who perpetually stay immature in their Christian lives and it just screams, whatever else is going on, there's a need for the intake of God's word. By the way, the reverse is also true. Every mature Christian I've ever known, and I've known a lot of them, I talk with lots of pastors, lots of missionaries, lots of church members who are are far from perfect, but who are really diving all in and living distinctive gospel-focused lives. And in every case, you can tell They have spent significant time, usually over a period of years. This doesn't happen instantaneously. Reading and and, and pondering and taking into their lives and absorbing the truths of the Bible. It it, it affects them. It rearranges the value system. It it recategorizes the worldview, and it sets the course of your life on a more mature direction. There is a causal relationship between maturity and scripture intake. That's, That's the point. Like, like plants that need the sun in order to thrive and grow. Uh, when I think about this, I, I thought of um, my own front yard. Uh, a few years ago, my wife and I put some plants in kind of a barren area right in front of our house, and uh, three of them were ornamental grasses. And one of them we planted close to the house, and one of them a little further away, and then one of them way out near the edge of the walkway, along with some other plants. And it's been really interesting to watch what happens to these three things over the last, they've been in the ground for a few years now, so they're very well established, and they're mature plants. Clearly, I'm not a green thumb, okay? I don't know a whole lot about (laughs) what plants need what and what plants go where or whatever. But even a a green thumb doofus like myself (laughs) can look at these three plants, now that they've been in the ground for a while, and tell you exactly what they need. They need sun. Here's how I know that. The one closest to the house gets a couple hours of sun in the morning, and then the house starts to shade it. The next one out gets a little more sun, and the one furthest away gets all kinds of sun. A few years in the ground, all three of them were healthy when we planted them, exact same size. All three are still alive today. Looking at the one closest to the house, you can barely tell, okay? There's a few little green shoots sticking up and a couple of pathetic little wispy kind of wannabe grass blades, you know? I mean, it looks almost like it's dead. You've got to look at it closely to realize it's actually still alive. I mean, it's almost just wasting away. The other one, the middle one, is actually doing fine. It kind of looks a lot like it did when we planted it. It's healthy, it's robust, it's fine. The furthest one away is like an afro in the ground. (laughs) It's insane. This thing has exploded. When I planted it, I had no idea one of these little grasses could get this big. It's like I got to get in there and just whack it just to contain it. It's grown like wildfire. You can just look at them and tell what they need and what they're getting. What this means is, by, by way of implication, if you want to be a Christian, it's not enough just to go to church and listen to preaching, not even good preaching, to believe in God and try to live a moral life, but kind of essentially leave, leave the Bible and, and its overall story and how to understand it kind of to the experts while we you know, sort of ruminate on a, a favorite verse or two that might give us some encouragement and some motivation to get through this week so that I can hold on to something God said. Nibbling around the table isn't enough to grow and thrive spiritually. You've got to eat. You've got to eat, not just be around other people who are eating. So I want to encourage us by way of applying this idea of Scripture's necessity to resist the temptation to, as it has been said by others, to warm your hands to somebody else's fire. 
but rather to figure out how to kindle your own fire of getting into God's word. Put it this way, if our only scripture intake is, say, listening to sermons or reading Christian blogs or reading devotional books, which are often the reflections of some other Christian who has gone into scripture and gotten something out of it, and then they write it in order to encourage you to do the same thing. All of these things can be incredibly useful tools. Uh, Believe me, I'm a preacher. I preach every Sunday. I believe very strongly in the power of the preached word of God in the life of a Christian. They're all very useful, but they are all utterly useless. They are utterly useless as substitutes for personal Bible reading yourself and for meeting God in the pages of Scripture. If you say, like, uh, I've done it before, I've tried it, I get lost, I get confused, I get busy, I get frustrated. How do you start to read the Bible on your own? Some of you already know how to do this well, just need to rekindle the desire. Some of you are doing it well, just need to continue. Some of us are probably struggling a little bit. I want to put a couple tools in our hands this morning and be really practical for a minute. Things that can help you launch into just getting into the Bible and letting it ruminate so that there's stuff in there to gradually learn from and make connections with when you're reading those books and listening to those sermons. The first thing I would recommend strongly is a Bible reading plan. If you don't have one, get one. (laughs) There's one that I'm using this year called the Discipleship Journal Bible Reading Plan. There's a lot of good Bible reading plans out there. If you got one you like, just go for it. But if you don't know where to start, I would encourage you to start with this one. I did a different Bible reading plan last year. It took me through the whole Bible in one year, just finished it in August. And so this year, this September, I just started this one, which is different than the one I did last year. Uh, Here's what I like about this one. It will get you through the whole Bible in one year, reading probably about 15 to 20 minutes a day, tops. So it's something you got to commit to, but it's not like hours and hours of Bible reading. So you get the whole thing. The other thing I like about it is that it, it's broken up. Every day's readings are broken up into four sections. So they pull one from the Old Testament law and history books, one from the wisdom literature like Psalms and Proverbs, one from the Gospels, and then one from the New Testament. So you're reading all four of those every day in small chunks. Um, that's a long-established and time-honored method. I think it originated with a Scottish Presbyterian pastor named Murray Machane back in like the 1700s, if my memory's right, of when he was alive and well. That's how he read the Bible. He encouraged his people to read it that way, and it just caught like wildfire. Um, for hundreds of years, Christians have recognized the value of reading the Bible this way. It just brings in some variety, which can be really helpful, especially through some of the drier parts of the Bible. If you've ever started at Genesis and tried to just plow straight through and you made it past Leviticus, you deserve a gold star. Um, it just gives you some variety. It also helps you see some connections. You're reading something in the Old Testament. A couple minutes later, you read something in the New Testament and you go, oh my goodness, wait a minute, that's, that's like, I see the connection. These things were written like 800 years apart and I get how the New Testament's building on the Old. You know, you see some of the connections that way. Last thing I'll say about the Discipleship Journal Bible reading plan that I kind of like is that it's built around 25 readings per month, which means every month you've got a couple of days that are kind of built in flex days, you know, so if you just happen to miss one or whatever because you had an early morning meeting or whatever it was, you know, you're not necessarily behind. You just keep going. If you'd like a copy, we've got a sample copy of it out at our Welcome Center. There's a whole list of resources out there. You Go to our atrium after the service, turn to your right, the welcome desk is there, and on the left of the Welcome Center, we've got several resources. This is one of them. This is just a printed copy. You can get it for free, download it as a PDF, um, just Google or, or web search for the Discipleship Journal Bible Reading Plan. You can print it yourself at home. Of course, uh, because we live in the age in which we live, there's also an app for that. 
The great thing about the app is that the app is free. I have the app on my phone, and I'm using it. There's a couple of features I like about it. It just pulls up the day's readings for you, so whatever it is, here it is. Tomorrow's reading, I'll be in Psalm 8. One of the other fun things about this is it will actually read to you, you know. If you're kind of lonely and, you know, you need to hear a voice, you can just listen to the Bible. How majestic is your name in all the earth. And on and on it goes. The sweet, sonorous voice. I have no idea who that guy is. But uh, I actually like to read it on my screen while it's playing so that visually and auditorially it just helps me stay engaged. There's different ways to use it. Really cool tools that are out there, all free. Great ways to get involved in it. By the way, just briefly, one other um, Bible reading app I was just introduced to this week is called the Read Scripture app. Um, also free, and it approaches the same thing in a different way, just breaks the Bible story up into 12 major segments, and it has some supplementary material at the beginning of each segment to help you kind of figure out what you're reading next, and then you go through the Bible readings. So many cool tools out there. So you can go to, uh, you know, the Google Play Store and download it, or I suppose the iTunes Store if you're one of, you know, those people. (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. Whatever your favorite app store is, just don't wear a football jersey when you're doing it. And, you know, Download your favorite app. So many cool tools. Get into reading scripture because it is absolutely necessary. Secondly, the scripture is necessary, but it is also clear. It is also clear. The clarity of scripture is something that the Bible insists upon as one of the essential things it teaches about itself. What do we mean by the clarity of scripture? Again, man on the street, common language definition, it simply means this. The Bible's teachings are able to be understood by virtually everybody. Again, that's just my personal wording of a a time-honored and well-worn theological principle. The Bible's teachings are able to be understood by virtually everyone. What this means is that the Bible is not made up of cryptic codes to which you need some special key to unlock the hidden true meaning. No matter how how many books that kind of idea sells, And every now and then, somebody comes up with some new, like, Bible code system or whatever, and it's all nonsense, okay? (laughs) It's all nonsense. The Bible is written in plain Hebrew and plain Greek, which, thank God, has been translated to plain English for those of us who speak that language. It's not made up of cryptic codes, nor is it so technical and complicated that only those who invest years and years of studying lots of of arcane and, and dry factoids could ever hope to make sense of what the Bible says. It's just so complicated. Multivariable calculus is like that, okay? <laughs> the Bible is not. The Bible is not. It is written in a plain, straightforward manner um, intended to be understood and read by common people, uh, not just experts. Here, one just example again from the Bible itself of where we get this idea and what it teaches about itself. From the book of Deuteronomy, we just saw Jesus quoting from a moment ago, the Bible says this, Moses speaking to the ancient Israelites says, a familiar passage to many of us parents, these words that I'm commanding you today, the book of Deuteronomy and the first five books of the Bible, uh, shall be on your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your children and talk about them whenever you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Now, the interesting thing about that command, pretty clear, pretty easy to understand what's being said there, ancient uh, Israelite parents were being told to internalize the truths of Scripture and teach them to their children. But notice who the teachers are and who the students are. It says a lot about the clarity of Scripture. The students, or sorry, the teachers were all... Um, all parents, 
All Israelites, most of whom were not formally educated in the way that we think about it today, they were nomadic at this point. They were just wandering through the desert trying to survive, and they were eventually to settle in the land and become cattle herders and, and farmers and, and do mostly invest their life in subsistence-level living in the promised land. They, they were not scholars. And yet, the expectation from God is that they would be able to hear and not only understand his word as non-educated, non-scholars, but that they would actually have enough of a command of God's uh, principles that they would be able to teach them to their children. God expects that what he says in the Bible is plainly understandable by anybody and virtually everybody. And, And notice who the students are, of course, too. The parents, the teachers, are supposed to teach them to children. Even to children. Obviously, there are age-appropriate or or age-specific things that kids are able to learn as brain continues to develop, but the bottom line is God expects that many of the teachings of Scripture are intelligible and understandable by kids even at the smallest age. They can learn who God is, how much He loves them. They can learn about sin and judgment and death. They can learn about hope and salvation and grace. They can learn that there is an eternal home and that this life is not everything there is to live. On and on it goes. The message of the Bible is sufficiently clear that even children can understand it. A couple quick clarifications that sometimes come up when we talk about the clarity of Scripture. People say, well, well, wait a minute. (laughs) I read the Bible sometimes and parts of it don't make sense to me, so how can the Bible say it's clear? This does not mean that Bible reading is a brainless activity. That's that's not what's being said here, Um, that it doesn't require any effort at all. Uh, if you read a part of the Bible and you go, I have like no idea what that means. I, <laughs> I've got no clue what I just read. Welcome to the family. Join the club. I mean, everybody has had that experience, sometimes in multiple places in the Bible. Um, reading and understanding the Bible, does it does take some effort, and there are some things that we need to learn Um, how to interpret it well, kind of culturally and historically, maybe what was going on at that time. Oh, suddenly it helps it make sense. There there are some things that aren't self-evident necessarily the first time you read through it. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is the Bible is able to be understood. That doesn't mean that everybody will understand it. But if they want to and they put in the work, anybody can and virtually everybody can understand what the Bible says. It's not beyond the average Joe, so to speak, air quotes, right? It also doesn't mean that all Christians will always agree on everything the Bible teaches. It's another question that comes up. If the Bible is so blasted clear, how come, you know, the Catholics and the Protestants can't agree on the Pope? How come the Baptists and the Presbyterians can't agree on whether or not to baptize infants? You know, I mean, there's these theological disagreements. Of course there are. Um, There are many of them, and this doesn't necessarily rule that out. Some parts of the Bible are harder to figure out than others. But what this is saying is that Most disagreements, first of all, arise over issues of lesser and lesser importance. The further you get away from the central message and meaning of the Bible, um, the less information is provided, and so the more obscure things can become, and that's often where the disagreements arise. Very few genuine Christians disagree on what the message of the Bible is about sin and salvation and God and guilt and grace and eternity and who Jesus is in all of that. It's very clear. The closer you get to the main message, the clearer it is and the fewer disagreements you'll find. And what's more, when there are disagreements amongst well-intentioned Christians over what the Bible says, it's usually not a function of the way the Bible is written, as if it's just completely incomprehensible. 
It's more a function of what the readers are bringing to the table because we have our own assumptions and biases and reactions that vary from one person to the next and that often affects how we read it and understand it. One example of this, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Um, I won't turn there right now for the sake of time, but it's, it's one of many passages in the Bible. There's several others that do the same thing that insist that our sin blinds us in the language of the Apostle Paul. It blinds us to the truths of God. So it's like, there's the truth of God. It's plain to see, but it's like I'm wearing sunglasses that have been totally blacked out so that I cannot see it at all. I cannot understand it. I don't comprehend it rightly, or I do understand it, and I think it's nonsense. I don't see it as true and beautiful. And when God comes along, one of the things that he does in our hearts is he removes the blinders so that we can see clearly. And the point of simply bringing that up is the problem is not that the Bible is just incomprehensible. Often the problem is that I'm seeing it wrong or bringing something else to the table that muddies the waters. This is not a guarantee that every Christian will see it clearly the first time. It's simply an insistence that the Bible is able to be understood. It's not coded. It's not hidden. It's not beyond you. It's not beyond you. Whether you've been to Bible college or seminary or not. So what do we do with this? Very strong implications and applications to this point. Since there are a few things to know to get into the Bible and actually get something out of it, invest yourself as a Christian in figuring out what are the basic tools that I need and how can I refresh myself on some of those or access them perhaps for the first time. The foundational things I need to read the Bible for myself and see the Bible's message clearly. Thankfully, your church is here to help. If this is your home church, if you have another home church, they can probably help you too. But here's some of the ways that we are here to help you get, no matter what your background is, if you're a brand new Christian, if you don't feel like you know anything, all the way up to a veteran Christian of 50 years or more, we can help you get more confident and more accurate in how you handle the Bible. Here's a couple ways that we're doing that right now in the life of our church. Uh, one is that we have a Bible study that we wrote a couple of years ago, and we used it. Many of you went through it. It's called The Bible Story in 40 Days, and it pretty much just takes you through 40 of the most important and prominent passages of Scripture from beginning to end to see the storyline of the Bible as it unfolds. And the whole point of that is that you see the message from within the Bible itself, so now you're more familiar with what the story is, and you know what story the Bible is telling. When you later get to some passage, you go, I don't know how that fits. Then you start to be able to compare it to the story and see the connections. We have a few copies of that available today. If you want to invest about 15 to 30 minutes a day for the next month and a half to get a handle on a Bible story, it's a great tool that can help you. It's available just for the cost of printing. It's a couple of bucks out there at the Welcome Center. We have those. Another one is a Harvest Wednesday class that we are running this fall. This is the third one I didn't allude to earlier, and I want to say just one thing about it right now. We've got a class starting up here for eight Wednesdays in just um, a few days from now, eight Wednesday evenings called Listening to God. Basically, how to read and understand the Bible for yourself. And what we're going to do in that class is simply talk about what are the major parts of the Bible, what is the story it's telling, how do you see that, and how do we get into the Bible ourselves, read something, understand it accurately, and meet God in the pages of Scripture. It's going to be very practical. We're going to do a lot of Bible reading together in community with other people and take tools that we're learning and put them into practice rather than just hearing about them. And friends, that's a priceless treasure. Um, our experience has been... Most Christians have never been shown how to do that in any kind of a systematic way. It's not super complicated. It's not really difficult. It's just the kind of thing that most of us sort of pick up by osmosis 
And that's good, but, but often nobody's really just walked us through the basic principles of how to read and understand the Bible accurately, unless you were exceptionally well discipled by somebody in your early years, and some of us were, or unless you've had a class at a Bible college or something, and, and some of us maybe have. But even for them, it's been a long time. So how do we actually get in and refresh our ability to understand Scripture and read it and handle it well? We're here to equip you. We're here to equip you. And this may be worth rearranging some of the Wednesday evening schedule to be a part of. So that's starting up in just a couple of days. Jump in, learn, and get refreshed. Um, One last thing I want to mention just briefly. um, If you're a fan of YouTube, go there and search for The Bible Project. Uh, that is a group of people that are actually originated here in Portland, our hometown, but um, they have created a number of short videos. They're usually like five to seven minutes long on pretty much every book of the Bible. Um, I I saw a couple of their videos when they were just getting started a couple of years ago, and I was like, wow, that's really good. And I haven't paid much attention since. I went back to YouTube and looked at their page just this last week, and they've got like gazillions of them now, so I'm not sure if they've got all 66 books done yet or not. But they're these illustrated kind of visual note-taking ways to just like walk through, what is Genesis all about? What's it saying? You know, what's Ezekiel all about? Um, What's the gospel? What's the book of Romans all about anyway? What's Revelation about anyway? We already studied that. You guys already know that one. You look at these things, and you know you can like sit down for five or six minutes and look at a very engaging and well done video. And it's not going to make you an expert, but it will certainly demystify a lot of what you're about to read. And then you jump into the Bible and you start actually reading that book of the Bible, and you're like, "Oh, I get it." In fact, that scripture reading app I mentioned earlier links directly to some of those videos and uses them in its Bible reading plan, which is a pretty cool feature. There have never been more really cool resources to help you get the basics of what's being said and what do I look for and how do I interpret this rightly than there are today. So take advantage of some of these things. The Bible is clear and it's worth getting to know. So scripture is necessary, first of all. We need it to grow like we need food. Let's get into the word, get a Bible reading plan. Secondly, scripture is clear. This is not beyond any of us who are willing to put in the work to get to know our God better as he's revealed his heart and mind in the pages of the Bible And one more we want to touch on this morning. Scripture is also enough. Scripture is enough. Uh, Bible scholars call this uh, the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. Scripture is sufficient. It's enough. It's not only essential, you desperately need it, but it is all you really need at the end of the day to live and to grow spiritually. This is is kind of a companion to the first point we made, the necessity of Scripture. I can't grow and thrive spiritually without it. On the other hand, the Bible is all I absolutely need to grow and thrive spiritually, which is another really strong statement. But the Bible makes that statement very clearly in a number of ways. Um, Defining it this way, the Bible contains everything we need to be saved, um, to trust in God, to be close to Him, and to live effectively for Him. Again, we've highlighted those words, everything we need. It doesn't mean there aren't other things that are really useful and helpful in our Christian lives. There are a lot of other things that are really useful and helpful. But in the final analysis, they're not strictly necessary. The words of God in the Bible are all I need. The Bible itself says this um, very clearly. For example, second, the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 3, uh, verses... I'm going to back up and read a couple of verses just so that we get the, the overall flow of this. 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verses 15 to 17... The Bible says, um, from childhood, this is the Apostle Paul writing to uh, his young pastor in training, a protege named Timothy. He says, from childhood, you have been, um, uh, sorry, lost my place there. 
There we go. From childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, the Bible, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It's His words. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God, Christian, may be competent, thoroughly equipped for every good work. You see what's being said there? The Bible alone is able to make you wise for the salvation that is available in Jesus Christ. This contains everything you know in order to be saved and have eternal life. It also is um, very useful to equip Christians to correct our bad thinking about God and ourselves and our life and to replace it with good thinking and to put all the tools in our tool belts that we need in order to build the kind of life God is calling us to build. He says, if you get into the Bible, you will have enough. You will have all you need to be competent to get the job done, thoroughly equipped to live for God the way that he's called you to and the way that if you're a Christian, you probably desire and aspire to. When it comes to living as a son or daughter of God, Paul says to Timothy, you don't need to look anywhere else other than the sacred writings, the Bible. That's got everything you need. Oh, Timothy, treasure this. Treasure this. Handle it well. Dive into it like, like a cold glass of water to a man in the desert because everything you need is found in those pages. Um, this doesn't mean that there are there aren't other sources of knowledge and wisdom that can be useful and helpful to us in our Christian lives. Uh, sometimes if I'm wrestling through like how to parent my children effectively and I read a secular book on parenting that isn't based on the Bible at all, I can still get some really helpful and useful insights from that. Um, I can learn from personality types and other aspects of, of studying human uh, psychology and so forth, some really helpful tools that I can apply in my Christian life. There's a lot of other good sources of information out there that can be really useful to us as Christians. We're not saying that Christians are allergic to any of that. But what this is telling us is that in the final analysis, while all of those things may be really useful and helpful if used well, they are not necessary for you and I to live the kind of lives that our God has called us to live. The only things that are strictly necessary for me to do that, he's given me right in the pages of this book. So at a minimum, this source of truth is going to be prioritized in my life above all others. I'm going to chase this one harder than I chase anything else. And I'm also going to look at some other sources of wisdom, the, the counsel of friends and people that have been there before me or, or other secular sources of, of information. And I'm always going to pass it through a grid of, hey, this may be useful, but how well does this line up with what God has taught me in Scripture? And is it helping me just see Scripture even better? Because at the end of the day, I don't need those things, even if they're useful. I only need what he has told me in his word. That's what Paul is telling Timothy in this passage here. It also means that our more subjective spiritual experiences can deeply enrich your experience with God. But they're not strictly necessary to living effectively for Him. Maybe you have a, a prayer time in a moment of crisis or, or you're singing to God and suddenly the words of a song just hit you. I mean, 
intellectually and emotionally, and I mean, you just walk away like devastated, and your heart is caught up in worship, and you go, oh my gosh, that was so rich and so incredible, and I felt so close to God in that time. Isn't that good? I'd say, that's not good. That's awesome. <laughs> or maybe you're praying really, really hard for, for clarity or direction, and, and somehow you get a sense either through things that happen or, or just an internal subjective sense that, mm, I've got this compulsion. God wants me to do this or do that. And if I do it, then maybe I'm following him the way he wants me to. Isn't that good? That's not good. That's awesome. Those are rich, rich times, and we all experience those things a little bit differently can be very useful and very rich times that make us feel closer to the Lord and sort of draw from later on as we continue to follow him and trust him in maybe darker times when we don't feel the same way. Having said all of that, such things are not, in the final analysis, needed in order for you to completely excel in your relationship with God. I remember many years ago having this conversation with my late mother when her mother had passed away. And there was a moment of grief by the hospital bed where my mom was just sitting there and sobbing quietly and praying and, and, and humming the tune of a hymn. And she said it was one of the most intense experiences she had. Nobody else was in the room. The nurses had left or whatever. And suddenly she said, I almost physically felt just a gentle blow of cold wind. And it wasn't like the AC unit. I mean... <laughs> And she said, it was just, it was inside. My skin just tingled and I just knew like never before that God was meeting me in the grief right there in that moment. And we talked about that and how powerful an experience and how merciful God was to give her that at that moment of need. But bless her heart, though my mother was what you might call a very strong feeler, she also then went on the conversation to say, that, that experience was so rich, I now have to be careful that I'm not constantly trying to recreate it. <laughs> because it was so meaningful for me then. Well, I feel like I could use another one of those now and maybe it doesn't come. And is that the basis of whether I feel like I'm with God or God is with me? She's like, no, I know what he's told me. He is with me. He's died for me. I never have to doubt his love or his presence. Thank God for those times I feel it more strongly. They're precious and they're treasures but I don't need to have that experience to be close to God. I need to trust what he has said, that he is close to me at all times. So we want to value some of these subjective experiences and these other sources of knowledge, but the sufficiency of Scripture means that we also guard against ever thinking that the Bible all by itself is somehow incomplete. I don't know many Christians that would ever say that. <laughs> But the doubt can kind of start to creep into our thinking if we're not really careful, right? Like, yeah, I know that's what the Bible said, but I need something else. Really? Do I? I might appreciate something else. I might like something else. Something else might be good, but it's not strictly necessary. Which means that the Bible is a Christian's perhaps greatest physical treasure. As we turn the corner for home, that's where I want to end this morning. It means that this book is among our greatest treasures. Sometimes I enjoy reading either missionary biographies or, or um, nonfiction, real-life stories of Christians who live out their lives either in the modern world or in, the, in, the, in times past in parts of the world where, where the Bible is not readily available and you can't just gather in churches. And so these people are like desperate for Christian community and they're desperate to hear from God. And, and maybe they have a piece of the Bible. Maybe they've got like one book of the Bible 
or, or a, a, you know, a gospel of John that, that some missionary smuggled in, and they don't even have the rest of the Bible. And you read these stories about how they, like, they cling to those pages, and they protect them as if they're life's greatest treasure. They're more precious to them than food, because this is where I find what God wants me to have. And it's like we have such an overabundance of food, sometimes we don't treasure it in our culture. We have such an overabundance of scripture and information. There's Bibles everywhere. It's easy to take them for granted. And the experience of those brothers and sisters in Christ, both past and present, helped me take a deep breath and step back and rekindle and ask in my own heart, like, how much is this book a treasure to me? Because in this book, I find the words of God. The God who became man for me. The God who laid down his life for me the immortal dying. It boggles the mind. And that's exactly what God says his love has accomplished for you and for me. What a treasure. A few weeks ago, our college-age daughter was on the road headed back to college. And um, my wife Amy and I took the big step with our daughter Elizabeth of saying, hey, this is the first year we're not going to drive back with you. She's down in Southern California. It's a long drive, but she's done it many times. We've done it with her. We know she can handle it. We're like, you want it? Yep. She's like, I got this. We're like, okay, you're fine. I'm not fine, you know? So like she's on the road and, and, and I'm having these parental moments, you know, where I'm like, objectively, I know everything's fine, but you better believe I was on tripcheck.com all week, all, all day long. Are there any accidents, any construction zones? <laughs> And, and we'd kind of planned out with her. She's like, yeah, I'm going to go this far and then probably stop and then I'll go this far and then stop for lunch or whatever. So we knew there'd be periods of a few hours where you know, we wouldn't hear from her and um, we'll just pray for her and go on with our day. And then, but man, once I, ooh, she should be getting close to you know, wherever she's going to stop. And like any moment now, I should be getting a text or a phone call. And it's like, <laughs> ooh, was that my phone? No, that was not my phone. <laughs> you know, and then finally the text comes in. It's like, beep, oh, the phone beeps. Oh, it's just one of the elders talking about Thursday night's meeting. I don't know, you know. <laughs> it's like my heart is totally somewhere else. And then boom, it beeps. And there's her name on the screen. And it's like, yeah, you're pushing the button. Come on, stupid old phone that's got too much stuff on it and slow memory. And it's not opening the text fast enough. And the text is like, you know, two sentences long. I mean, it kind of says nothing. But to me in that moment, it's like, yes, she's safe. Of course she's safe. I knew that. In my head, I did, but like, you know, emotionally, I'm like, I can't wait to hear from her and hear how she's doing. How are you feeling? You know, are you in pain? Are you too tired? How's it going? Whatever. And, and then she stopped in one place and we got to talk to her. And oh, just, you know, this precious because, because there's somebody you love and you can't wait to hear from them. Friends, we have a precious message from the God of the universe who loves you more fiercely than you've ever dreamed was possible. He's given us his word which is absolutely essential, it's completely accessible, and it's more than enough. Let's be this year a people of the word based on scriptures and loving our God. I want to encourage you to check out some of the resources that are at the Welcome Center before you leave and get a plan, and let's get into God's word together. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for the great truths of your word and for the precious treasure that your word is. And God, I confess, like I'm sure most of us, they're not, every hour of every day, there's not always a time that I'm thinking about how precious the Bible is to me, nor am I often treating it that way. Uh, many times I do, many times I don't. But reading these passages and thinking these basic theological principles through once again, 
just rekindles our heart's desire to know you better as you revealed yourself in your word. So I pray, Father God, wherever each one of us is at, those of us who are followers of Jesus and Christians this morning, would you elevate your word in our own hearts and minds, not for its own sake, but because it records the heart and the mind of the God who loved us. Give us the facility and the tools to be able to dive in and meet you clearly and accurately in the pages of Scripture, and I pray that we would be transformed as a people by your Spirit as we process the truths in community together that we find in this book. Change us continually that we might reflect you and the precious truths you've given us in your word. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, that we ask these things for his glory.